Uh, And so our text today will be found in Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 21. So if you want to turn there, uh, if you do not um, have a Bible, we should have some. We are working on getting more, uh, some hardback black ones that are in the seat pockets in front of you. And if you do grab one of those, you can turn to page 810 is where you'll find the text. Uh, Also, if you don't own a Bible, we'd love to gift this one to you. Um, And then if you do have one, you can just put it back. If you just need to use it this morning, we'll also have it on the screen. But as you get there and when you get there, if you wouldn't mind, if you're able to, to stand with me for the reading of God's word. Uh, Once again, that's Matthew chapter 5. We're going to start in verse 21. Hear the word of the Lord. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard, and you be put into prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. This is God's word. You may be seated. Good morning. Happy Super Bowl Sunday to you. It's a 9 a.m., so I know you guys are trying to get a good start on your day. You're not fooling anybody, okay? I know what you're doing. Glad you guys are here. Uh, my name is Cord. I'm one of the pastors here at the church, and uh, I want to say thanks for making us a part of your week. If it's your first time, we'd love for you to get plugged in. If you don't have a home church, we would love to be your home church. One way you can do that, and this will be probably repeated to you over and over uh, this morning, but you can just fill out a Connect card, make yourself known. We'd love to plug you in here at Providence. Hopefully someone's grabbed you, shared a little bit about who we are. If not, uh, you can always go to the Connect booth. Maybe somebody will share that with you. But this morning, we got a lot of work to do, so I kind of want to hop in. Uh, and I want to start by saying... This morning's one of those heavy, heavy sermons. Uh, it's one of those, we got a lot of work to do in the text. It's a lot of verses. And then also, of course, uh, it just, just so happens that I get to preach anger and lust on Super Bowl so, uh, Sunday. So, great, you know, the text dictates it. You know, we set out our sermon series, then I'm looking at it, and I'm like, oh, good, okay, this is where we're going to be at. Um, so, I'm not going to have this festive text to preach, but that's okay. I'm going to be trying to be faithful to the Bible. Um, it, The Lord obviously wants us to go here as a church, so we're going to go there. The Bible is clear. Um, And I want to say this. Even though this is a pretty heavy sermon, there's a lot of hope this morning, so stick with me. There's a lot of hope um, at the end this morning. So uh, my wife has, uh, since we we first got together when we were dating, we've been together for 15 years. We're coming up on our 10-year wedding anniversary uh, next month. Yeah, that's exciting. And uh, we're going to go celebrate, but we, we've been together for a long time. I think this year marks that we've been together at least dating longer than we've been not together in our lives. I'm not sure about that, but it's pretty close, or it's already happened. Hopefully it hasn't already happened. Anyway, 
Um, but since, we, since we've been together, my wife has had this thing where uh, really early on we would, uh, I would give her a hug or I'd go in to give her a kiss and she would look at me and I'd be looking at her and I'm, you know, falling in love with her and looking deeply into her eyes and then she would go, have you plugged your eyebrows? Just, you know, when you're this close, you know what I'm talking about? When you're like this close to each other. When you get married, this, if this hasn't happened yet and you're married, you just wait, okay? Um, and if you're dating and you're squeezing your, you know, significant other's hand, never, baby, I never say that to you. Just wait, see you in counseling in a couple weeks. Um, anyway, so she, she would always say that to me, and we, I would laugh, like, why, why, are you, why can't you just look at me and say, I love you? Or, you know, you, you look handsome today. Not, have you plucked your eyebrows? You know, um... So she has this mirror, and girls, I don't know if you have one of these mirrors. I think her mother bought it for her. It's one of these vanity mirrors, um, and it's uh, well titled. And uh, it, it, it has uh, lights around the rim of the, the mirror, the circular mirror. And these lights are like LED to the point of like they hurt. Uh, and then it's like almost like uh, the, the mirror itself is really strong. So it's like it like zooms in on your face. So it like it. it it shows every imperfection when you look into this mirror. So I would look at myself in the mirror and be like, I don't know why she's so like, upset or why she's saying that. Then you look into this mirror and you're like, oh my gosh. Like, this is what my face looks like for real. Like, on, this is what other people experience uh, when they look at me. And this thing just kind of zooms in. And there's two things that this mirror does. It shines light on what's actually there, okay, because the lights are so bright, like LED. And, and also the mirror, like, it brings like a different proximity to what you're seeing. It brings a closeness uh, to what you're seeing that allows you to actually see what's going on there. That, that's what the Word of God does in our lives. Uh, particularly, this text is going to do that, I think, this morning. Um, and I know whenever I say we're going we're gonna to talk about anger and lust, that there are some of us who kind of tighten up. We say, oh, man, why are you going to go into, into this, this arena of life? He starts saying, I'm just not going to look at my spouse. I'm not even going to talk right now. I'm just going to focus in like nothing's moving me. And then I'm hopefully going to get out of here and we're going to go eat and move on with our lives. Others of you are like, eh, that's not me. I've you know, floated along and I'm just fine. I'm not angry, not lustful. That's just not a struggle with me anymore. I have a, I've overcome by the, by the blood of the lamb. Um, and here's what I want to say. What Jesus does here is he doesn't, he doesn't let us off the hook, anyone off the hook, with the way in which he defines the sixth and seventh commandment uh, in the Ten Commandments. And so what he's going to do is he's going to shine a light. Then he's going to bring it, he's going to come in close proximity with what's really happening in our soul. And those are two things that make us feel uncomfortable. Have you ever been in a conversation with someone and it's totally fine, but they break that common proximity space where you're like, you know, you got a healthy like three to four feet, we're having a conversation, but then they get really close to you. And so you kind of like, you talk, but you're slowly trying to talk, you're turning your head, you're like, yeah, yeah. And it's not loud in the room, like you have to turn your head for, to hear them. It's just like you don't want to be like lip to lip with someone that you're not that comfortable with. Jesus does that with his word, bringing a proximity that's uncomfortable for us. Like when someone comes in your house and gets really close to the dirty closet that everything's in and you're worried they might turn the knob. That's what Jesus does through the word. And so uh, here's what I want to do. I want to start by saying this. This text has already slain me all week long. And I want to start there because I think it's important for me to acknowledge I know where we're headed. Um, and I need to say first, I'm a fellow brother submitting to this word. Um, I've been afflicted by it, affected by it, but most importantly, anchored by it back to Jesus in the gospel. And so as we walk through this, the authority that comes with these words is Jesus's, amen? Like it's the Lord's authority. That's really what the Sermon on the Mount's teaching us is that Jesus comes with authority and when he 
preaches the Sermon on the Mount, the first thing that everybody says is, with how, with what authority this man preaches? He's not like the scribes and the Pharisees. He preaches with authority. So as we talk through this text, remember that. The authority doesn't come from man. It doesn't come from the institution, the church. It comes from the groom of the church, Jesus Christ. So let me pray. Let's pray. Let's ask God, help us, um, and, and, and bring us to the place of anchoredness, not just to the place of conviction that leads to then maybe condemnation as the enemy tries to do his work, but actually anchoring us back in the gospel this morning, okay? So if you'll bow your heads, I want to pray for us. Father, we're grateful for your word, even when it stings. Um, and we're so much more grateful for the gospel than whenever we first walked in, hopefully. Thank you, Jesus, that you didn't have to die just to save a few of us, but you had to die, my God, because all of us have fallen short of the glory of God. Thank you, Jesus, that, that the gospel's not just for the worst of the worst, that it's for the best of us, because the best of us still are not good. And we lean into the hope that you're making us that way. We lean into the hope that you care more about us becoming like you than we ever could. And this morning, it's our prayer, would you enlighten us with your hopes, your dreams for us? Because, my God, your promises are true. And when you hope and dream, they become so. And when we hope and dream, we do just that. So we lean into your, your certainty and your sure promises for us. We trust you, Lord. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, so before I go in, remember we're, we're preaching through the Sermon on the Mount, which is one sermon from Jesus. So like we get up and, and until we can have, you know, seven hour services, you can't do the Sermon on the Mount justice in one sermon. So what we have to do is we have to break it up, right, into sections. But the problem with that is it gives us a full six days to kind of like be removed from where we were. And then we try to enter back into what is really one full sermon, one thought from Jesus, and that it just begin, it continues to layer upon, layer each paragraph, each moment of Jesus' sermon. And so I, what I want to do first is, is kind of go back a little bit and say, where have we been? So, so first, we kind of walk through the Beatitudes. These are identities given uh, by Jesus for those who will be called into his kingdom. And the idea of Jesus' kingdom is a humongous theme in the Bible, right? It says that Jesus' first sermon that he ever preached when he first entered into ministry was, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Believe the gospel is what the book of Mark says. So believe in the gospel, believe in the good news, because that's how you'll enter into the kingdom of heaven. And the kingdom of heaven is this idea of God's Messiah, God's man becoming the reigning, ruling king of his people. And that now all of the sin, evil, death, pain, tears that has always plagued humankind will be done away with when the Messiah shows up and he makes everything right. Jesus shows up and says, hey, the kingdom's at hand. I'm here. And the way into the kingdom is to believe the good news. Now, we get the privilege of being on the backside of the resurrection, the backside of the cross, and knowing what he's talking about. He's saying that the way to enter the kingdom of heaven is one way and one way alone. It's not by your good works, but it's by the good work of Jesus on the cross. I want to say that as a baseline before we begin this morning, because it's so easy for us, particularly in the Bible Belt, to still believe and hang on to this semblance of belief that we can earn our way into the kingdom. That's, we're gonna do, one day we're going to hit this level of sanctification where we're like, now my prayer life's better, God will accept me. You know, now I read my Bible frequently, or at least more frequently. Now God's going to accept me. Now I don't yell at my kids anymore. God's going to accept me. Now I serve in the children's ministry, and God's definitely going to accept me. 
Whatever it is that we feel like is the marker for righteousness, and that when we hit that mark, then God's going to bring me. He's going to say, yes, now you're my son, you're my daughter, and now whenever I stand before God and I'm judged, my good deeds will outweigh my bad, and then finally the, the scales are going to tip in my favor. And church becomes a way in which we can kind of chip away at all the bad that's in us, and, and hopefully we'll lean into the good. And Jesus says, no, the best of you, the best of you, the Pharisees and the scribes, which we need to know as hard as we are on them, are way more righteous than us. He says the Pharisees and the scribes will not enter in. And in fact, the tax collectors and the prostitutes, they're going to go into the kingdom before the Pharisees and the scribes. Why? Because they understand what punches the ticket. And what punches the ticket is Christ's righteousness and believing the good news that he has done everything that needs to be done, not that we can do it, okay? So with that, he goes and we get the Beatitudes where Jesus says, this is who I'm making the citizens of my kingdom. So you get poor in spirit, you get blessed of those who are meek, you get hunger and thirst after righteousness, peacemakers, all these things. Then Jesus goes on and says, and, and, and when we're this way, we'll be salt and light. Corey got up here two weeks ago and said that, that the two things that Jesus tells us we will be if we embrace these identities in Christ is we'll be salty, a preservative to the world, that the kingdom of God, the church, the people of God are meant to be a preservative to a world that's actually rotting with sin, and that it's important that as salt, we don't, just, we don't distance ourselves from the world, but that we are in the world and not of it. That we're in the world preserving those who don't even know that sin exists, which is why being light means that we expose that by our very lives. It doesn't always have to be by our words. And then we went on, and last week, Eric talked about the law. Now, this is really on the heels of what I'm going to be talking about this morning, or really, I guess it's on the forefront. I'm on the heels. The law and the idea that Jesus is the fulfillment of the law, and yet he's not coming to tell us that the law has no importance, is very, very key to this morning's sermon. It's hard to say that Jesus is redefining the law in this morning's sermon. He's going to take the sixth commandment and the seventh commandment. Most of us are familiar with that, even if we don't have a memorized, Right? The Ten Commandments, this is number six and number seven. Jesus is going to take those two commandments and he's going to say, you've heard it said this and I say to you this. I don't think we can, even though Jesus is redefining, what he's really doing is because Jesus is God in the flesh, he is defining it rightly for the very first time for many people. When Jesus comes here, we don't need to go back to the Old Testament to check Jesus. We need to come to Jesus in order to understand the Old Testament. If we listen to Jesus' words, we go, oh, well, that's not what Moses said. Hear me, friends. What Jesus said is better than what Moses said. And what Moses said came straight from God, but he's an intermediary, and the understanding comes through Christ, and the fulfillment comes through Christ. So let's talk about Jesus and Moses, and then we'll jump in. Moses is like, Jesus is like Moses because Jesus is also a teacher. Jesus is a son who looks to serve his father's purposes. That's also what Moses looked to do. He looked to serve the heavenly father's purposes. And lastly, Jesus is like Moses because Jesus longs to lead his children into life. And that's what Moses was trying to do. He's trying to lead the children of Israel into the promised land. But this is key. Jesus is unlike Moses because he is not merely a messenger of God who's bringing the law. He is God of very God, the embodiment of God's very presence. And he is the fulfillment of the law and the only true authority on the intention of the law itself. Does this make sense? So when Moses comes, he gets the law from God. He brings it down on the stone tablets, and he begins to be a purveyor of the law. Jesus comes, and he's the embodiment of the law, and he says, hey, you guys think that you know the law. Let me tell you what it really means. And so when we jump in here, we got to think, this is the authority of Christ coming and saying, here's the intention of God's law from the very beginning. And so he's going to give us more insight 
And when he does, it's going to be like that mirror that kind of checks our souls and says, oh, we thought that we were really good law keepers. Turns out it's not the case. Okay, let's read verses 21 through 26 again. And I know you're just really stoked to hear this again. Eric's already talked about it. He's already said it, and you already cringed once. Here's the second cringe. Commandment number six is thou shalt not kill. No murder. Jesus says this to the crowds. You've heard it said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders is going to be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you're offering your gift at the altar, and there you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard, and you be put into prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you pay the last penny. Okay. So here's the dichotomy that Jesus is going to highlight here, and this is difficult for every single one of us. We are all born with an understanding and a sense of right and wrong. Um. You may have kids that are a little more rebellious, and you're like, uh, I would like to beg to differ with that. Uh, my child does not understand. But there's, all, there's a sense of, uh, I've done something that I should not have done, and you kind of see this in your children's eyes whenever maybe they have shame. Now, you might have said to your kids before, you're just shameless. And there are things that kids are shameless about. But for the most part, we have this idea that there's right and wrong. Here's why I know, is because I don't have to teach Jonas to be angry when someone else punches him. I don't have to teach him to be angry, and I also don't have to teach him to tattle. Like he comes and he's like, hey, and Jonas, does, he has a speech delay. He's not able to have a full conversation with me, but here's what he goes, da-da. And he just looks at me and he points. This is the other day we were at, uh, and I won't call them out, we were at a friend's house and I told Jonas at, at dinner, uh, sit on your bottom. And, and, and one of our friends, you know, their, their child was, was sitting on their, I think on their knees eating because he wasn't quite tall enough. And, and Jonas goes, da-da. No. What is he saying? That's not fair. This is injustice, you know? Like, I had to sit on my bottom, and, and look at that. That's legit. He's standing up at the table. You don't have to teach children that. Now, here's the dichotomy there. Here's the difficulty, is that in the same way that we all have a sense of right and wrong and a longing for justice, we all have a penchant toward the wrong in our hearts because of sin. That's tough, isn't it? Like, our natural bend is to do the wrong, not to do the right, and we know it. And Jesus is calling on this. The anger is a helpful emotion. And I want to make this clear. Jesus, at times, became angry. We get this whenever Jesus makes a, uh, a whip with the, the cords in the temple, and he whips the people out of the temple. You ever thought about that? I heard a sermon by Matt Chandler. He said, you know, the WWJD bracelets. He said, what would Jesus do? And you're like, well, that doesn't really work if we read through the gospel sometimes, because like, I don't know, he's going to whip people out of the temple. You know, what's Jesus going to do here? Like, there's sometimes where Jesus does stuff, and you're like, hmm, that's interesting. Anger is a helpful emotion because it helps us fight injustice, it helps us to protect the things that are important, and it's an appropriate response to evil in the world. But anger's been distorted by sin. We see this in the very first narrative after the fall of man, what happens with Cain and Abel, right? Cain and his brother Abel bring their offerings before God, and through jealousy and anger, Cain kills his own brother. So intrinsically within us, the helpful emotion that is anger has been twisted and it often lends itself to sin. What is anger really? Anger is a function of feeling out of control and a longing and a belief that you should be in control of everything. When we run up against the fact that we are not omnipotent, we are not omniscient, 
We are not omnipresent, and we don't get to control everything in our lives. It makes us frustrated. Example, driving in Houston. Why is it? Have you ever seen this? And maybe you've been a part of doing this. Someone cuts you off, you know, what do you do? Honk, or my favorite, pull around them, pull in front of them, and slow down. What is that? Yo, you want to do that? Let me show you how I control this. And they try to get over, you get over. You're going 35 on 59. Your kids are like, mommy, you know. Like, I will show them who's in control. Right? Because when someone comes in and they, they knock you off course from what you feel like you are in control of, anger is the natural response. You see, Jesus quotes the sixth commandment here, and he's not denying the truth of the commandment. Instead, he has a problem with how the Pharisees and the scribes have interpreted the commandment, particularly the spirit of the commandment. You see, they viewed the consequences only, and they, they only viewed the action as being worthy of the consequences. Here's what I mean. They skip right over the intention of the heart, and they say, listen, don't kill people, because if you kill people, you'll be liable to the council, you'll be liable to judgment, period. That's still true, Right? That's still true right now, the laws of the United States of America, right? If you kill someone, you are going to be liable to the counsel, to the judge, and now you're going to be punished for it. And yet Jesus says the law of God was actually trying to go down into the heart. It's not about external behavior only. It's about internal transformation. That when God talked about the sixth commandment, his intention was to get down to why in the world you even wanted to act like that in the first place. Matthew Henry says this, the fundamental, the fundamental error of the Jewish teachers was that the divine law prohibited only the sinful act and not the sinful thought or motivation. They were disposed to rest in the letter of the law and they never inquired into the spiritual meaning of it. Close quote. So the problem with the Pharisees is that they were only focused on the action and they didn't never really want to get into the depths of their own heart. You know, much like we don't want to step in front of the mirror to see what things are really going on beneath the surface, we don't want to actually address with why in the world we are that way. What makes us want to pull around that car, slam on the brakes to let everybody know we're in control? What's going on there? Jesus goes right after that. He goes right after the intention of the heart and basically says, you have heard it said that you shouldn't murder, but your anger is heart murder and therefore you're guilty. That's what he says. Then he takes it a step further, right? And I love this because you got to think about the crowd that's there with Jesus. There's a mixed crowd there, and he's going to talk about religious worship in relation to anger. He says this. He says, if you're at the, coming to the altar to worship and you have ought against your brother, or you know that your brother has ought against you, leave your gift there, go reconcile with your brother. And then he goes on this litany of do it quickly, settle with your accuser. If not, they're going to throw you into prison. You're going to pay every penny. You need to take this serious. Go and reconcile. What is Jesus saying? Anger has a way of destroying relationships. And when anger is unaddressed, it lends itself to many other sins. Bitterness, jealousy, rivalry, deceit, gossip. You guys familiar with all these? It starts with anger and then it lends itself to all of these other things. And Jesus says, rather than allowing those things to fester and brew, run towards the reconciliation with your brother. And I love that he attaches it to our worship. He says, God is not interested in our worshipful attitudes when our hearts are full of anger and bitterness toward our brother. He's gonna, the Lord's going to echo this through the words of John in 1 John where he says, if we say we love God but we hate our brother, that the truth is not in us. He said, we can't, we can't operate that way. It's impossible for us to have this passionate zeal for God and yet disregard for the neighbor who bears the image of God. 
You guys making sense with this? And that's what he's after here. You see, murder and anger are relational sins, and Jesus is making that case. But sometimes we know that murder is a relational sin because it involves another, but we forget that the motivation of the heart, you're angry at a person, an image bearer. Your anger's aimed somewhere. And in a minute, we're going to get into this. Many times your anger is actually aimed at yourself, and you don't even know it. So what does he say? He says, leave your gift. I love that he says, leave your gift. That means you're obliged to return. <laughs> Sometimes when we struggle with anger uh, and we start, it starts to get highlighted, uh, it's a time that we isolate from the body of Christ. So we'll isolate from people because people equals proximity and proximity equals them knowing. And then when they shine light on that, it's ugly and now I'm going to pull away. But Jesus says, leave your gift at the altar so that you can come back. Because we ought to be committed to the community together. But he says, leave it at the altar. And then what does he say? He says, go. Go and reconcile. Confessing your sin, asking for forgiveness, mending the relationship if possible. And there's two-way street here, right? He says it, and I love this, if you know your brother has ought against you. That's interesting, isn't it? Sometimes we think, I'm only going to go if it was my fault. Right? But he says, if you know your brother has ought against you in general, it could be totally unfounded in your eyes. And let's agree that it's, that's usually the case in our minds. When's the last time you were like, you know what, they're angry, it's legit. You know, your spouse, right? Your arguments, can I, can I, I could tell you something without knowing you, you think you're right when you argue with your spouse. <laughs> or you wouldn't be arguing. You think you're right. And you might have a percentage in your head of how right you are. Most of us lend towards the 95. Okay? Jesus says we ought to engage come to terms quickly, meaning don't wait, don't put this off because, you know, small brush fires turn into forest fires when they're untamed and unaddressed. So Jesus looks at the crowds and says, God is not content with our external behavioral modification to avoid judgment. It's not just about avoiding judgment. Parents, don't you get this? You don't want your children to just obey you to avoid getting a spanking. You want them to want to long for wholeness. You want them to want to not jump in the pool when they can't swim because it'll harm them. Eric said this last week, and I just feel remiss. I know we don't have tons of time, but I feel remiss if I don't say it. The law of God is good reviving the soul. The law of God is for you. God is a gracious God who loves you. And when he lays the law down to you, he doesn't lay it down to you in order to squash you. He lays it down to give you life. It's like a parachute given to you when you're on a plane that's going down. It might feel constricting when you're sitting in the seat, but I promise you you'll be glad when you pull the ripcord in the air. It's the raft that we sit in, in a really tumultuous river. We cling to Christ because he's the embodiment of that good purposes, those good purposes that God has for us. So when you think through the law of God, I hope you think of it as an invitation into the deep life, not as a constricting list of rules. When God says, thou shalt not kill, what is he saying in the inverse? He's saying, value life. Value life. Can we all agree that would be a great rule to follow? When he says thou shalt not commit adultery, what is he saying? Value your spouse. Love them with a wholehearted, single-pursuited love. Value them at a soul level. And in the same way, don't demean and devalue someone else. Taking covenantally what's not yours to take. Okay, I'm getting ahead of myself. So what's God after? He's after making us whole, transforming our heart. And what is he after in the anger? He wants to replace the anger with real peace. With not just peace with God, that's the first, but then peace with others. So Jesus says the law 
is this, but I'm coming not just to be the x-ray machine that shows you where you're broken. I'm coming to be the physician to heal. That's what kingdom life is like. Okay, let's go through verses 27 through 30. Then he goes into a difficult one, right? Let's all agree. You've heard it said you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it's better for you to lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it's better for you to lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. Now, before you guys come back next week as pirates, I want to give you some insight here. Okay? First, what is he saying? Lust is heart adultery. That's what he's saying. He's getting at the heart here again. And once again, just like anger is a necessary and helpful emotion, desire is helpful and necessary when it's directed to your covenantal spouse, is it not? Isn't it what we really long for? Like, let me tell you something. Here's what I could promise you. You probably wouldn't have married your spouse if whenever they came to the altar, they said, listen, I'm not really into you, but this is what God's called us to do. Let's, you know, let's do the vows. Like, I don't, really think, I don't really think you're cute. I don't really think you're beautiful. I don't really think you're handsome. I'm not really interested in any desire. I'm just doing the right thing. You'd be like, oh, you know, write that down on a nice Hallmark card, you know, for the anniversary. No, desire's helpful, necessary, and a God's gift. But desire, when sin distorts it, creates lust, and lust is the function of seeking comfort apart from that which is truly comforting. Or, in another way you could think, and why do I think lust and anger are connected? Well, here's one thought, is that when you realize you're out of control and you're angry, you need something to comfort you. And when you don't find comfort in covenantal love, whether that be covenant with God and covenant with spouse, you will search for it elsewhere. And lust seeks to fulfill the desires of our hearts at, all, at the cost of another. So if love is fulfilling the desires of another at all great cost to yourself, lust is the inverse. Hear me on this. If marital covenantal love, men, Ephesians 5, right? What does it say? Husbands, love your wives as Christ loves the church. All right. There are a lot of answers there. We're doing okay. What does that covenantal love look like? Well, it is a willingness to give, like Jesus, every part of yourself for the good of another. That's what Jesus did for us, right? And that's the call from God towards husbands for their wives. Love them like Jesus loved the church, giving everything that you have for their good. The lust is the inverse. It's taking whatever necessary to fulfill your own desires, even if it's not yours. And we live in a culture where this is pretty common, right? We live in a pornographic culture. It's kind of a, a phenomenon if you look at human history, like the, the accessibility towards this for all of us. And listen, I want to make this caveat because I think it's important. This is not a man issue. It's a human being issue. So yes, Jesus aims here at men, and I do think that we struggle differently and for, and for different reasons. But nonetheless, the, t- the statistics bear out that this is a male and female issue. Because it's not just whether you go, uh, maybe you're watching 2D images on the computer. It could also be romance novels and fantasy. And, you know, you can email me later about whether you think those are, but I would probably get back to the heart here and say, yes, they are. Because ultimately, what are they lending themselves toward? They're lending themselves toward comfort outside of your covenantal relationship with your spouse. And, and listen, I'm talking in the context of marriage, but I can go outside of that, right, and go into the single life and say, hey, and what do we really long for? We long for uh, what Song of Solomon says, awakening love before its time and grabbing what is not covenantally ours because we desire it rather than doing the painstaking task of commitment first. Because commitment means that we're here for the long term. And I want to say that this is not something that is uncommon. It's very common in our culture. 
that when Jesus says this, what he does is he indicts all of us. Because listen to me, I, can, I use these examples of, you know, I don't know, I'm using examples of, you know, what, what you're doing on the computer or what you're reading. But really, if, if we go to the text, it says what's happening in the heart. And can we all agree that if we were to plaster that on the wall, I mean, my gosh. He indicts us here. Why is Jesus so adamant about this? Why is he so adamant that he would use these hyperboles of, hey, cut your eye out? Cut your hand off? Why, would he, why is he so passionate about it? Well, I think he's so adamant because lust dehumanizes the Imago Dei. You know? Like whenever we, whenever we uh, look in lust upon another, what we're really doing is taking away their soul from them. We're taking away their story. That, that, that what, we're, what we're looking at is someone who has a real story, who has real wounds, who has a real past. And it doesn't matter whether that person says that they're totally okay with it or this is how they make money or whatever. You, we justify in our minds, but really what we're doing is we're, we're taking what we know to be true about people's real wounds and real scars and we're saying that's not really important because it's giving me what I need and what I want in the moment. And it dehumanizes the very Imago Dei. And really all because we think it's going to give us a a tinge of satisfaction in some way, shape, or form. And Jesus is passionate about this because it, it, it costs so much, right? It requires so much of us. We give up so much with this. It rewires our brains. Like, you guys can do the research if you want to. I've done it. It's crazy what it rewires our brains and does to us psychologically. And then what it actually gives us is not anything at all. It takes everything and gives nothing. Here's what it gives back. Uh, shame, guilt, condemnation. Your conscience begins to be seared to the point where now it can become marred and numb. And then maybe the most important thing for us to note here is God's purposes are better, guys. What is he actually aiming at here? Well, the inverse of saying that you shouldn't lust is saying that you should pursue oneness with your spouse, with the covenant spouse. Depth, commitment, life, love, soul-level acceptance and knownness in a covenantal relationship with the lover of your soul. That, that, what, he's, what he's actually saying here is not robbing life. He's trying to actually give life, and he's trying to cut out the cancer of the lies of the world that says this is life, and really it's just rotting you away from the inside. And Jesus says, let me do the surgery. Let's cut this mess out, and let's inject life. Here's what real life is. And then once again, Jesus' issue here is that the Pharisees have basically boiled it down just to an act. And they say, listen, you're free and clear as long as you never act on it. Uh, and we can get on to the Pharisees here, but let's just go into uh, even American history. Um, like here's one of our founding father's heroes, uh, Benjamin Franklin. He had this journal called The Virtues. And uh, he, he kept a journal every single day. To, he thought that you had to practice these virtues. And many of them come from the scriptures, uh, whether it be temperance or uh, you know, moderation, all this stuff. He, he would check every day, how did I do on all these virtues in the hopes of growing in character? Well, one of those was fidelity, right? But here's how Benjamin Franklin defined fidelity. As long as your wife doesn't catch you, you're being faithful. I'm not kidding. That wasn't like something that came out later. That's something that was pretty open. And culturally speaking, in that day, that was what it was. As long as you're, because here's the thing, honor was such a high value in the culture that really it was just dishonoring for that to come out. Which is why you found in the cultures oftentimes if girls would get pregnant or if there was any kind of infidelity that it would be hidden within the family. Because ultimately then it wasn't considered sin because nobody knew, so keep the family secrets. That's where this culture comes from. But what is that? It's really just the heart of the Pharisees boiling it down to an act, right? Boiling it down to if people know, if it was done, and Jesus says no, Attack the root of it. 
or as John Owen says, the sinfulness of sin. Jesus, when he talks about the plucking out of the eye or cutting the hand, he says, be ruthless with lust because this, Satan and sin is ruthless against you. Don't ever kid yourself. They are not being gentle with your soul. So be ruthless against this sin. John Owen also went on to say, be killing sin or it will be killing you. Fight it. And Jesus says, I don't only want the external actions to be cut off because then the cancer still bites at you. Instead, I want to create what doesn't exist in you, which is wholeness, a pursuit of love and unity in your marriage. And I want to give you true satisfaction. So you think that you're going to get satisfaction this way. I want to give you true satisfaction. I want to give you true fulfillment. Okay. So before we get into some really practical guidance um, and then pray, let's talk a little bit. I, I think this text has done what it's meant to do in our hearts, which is some of us, like I said earlier, it, it's easy to feel this. I just need to look forward, not look around, not seem affected, because then I'm outed. And, and here's, here's what I want to say. Um, I want to say this. We are outed. Okay, so I, I pray that, and it's something that the, the churches have maybe a poor job of. I'm not trying to blunt the edge of the sword. I'm more so trying to say that's what it's meant to do. The sword's meant to pierce. Why? Because the gospel comes to heal. So what should we do? I, I want to give some practical uh, steps. Um, one is confess one to another and so be healed, James 5 says. So if you're a spouse, confess to your spouse. Hey, this is something that goes on in my heart. I, I need to confess it to you. We need to pray. I would encourage you, home group leaders, if you're in there, do, do some maybe uh, discipleship groups that are gender specific and get some other people that you could talk about this stuff with. Um, I'm angry, man. There's anger that's always at the surface of my heart and it bubbles up. And I just want to talk about it. The, the, the intention, that the lust is a battle and I just want to talk. I need to open, I need to share that rather than let that fester in the darkness. Number two, spouse, if you hear that from your spouse and you're worried, you're terrified, you're like, Court, why are you doing this? Why are you ruining us? Here's what I want to say. I'm not trying to ruin you. I'm trying to give us all the best opportunity at wholeness together. I'm trying to let Jesus and encourage you to let Jesus come in and do the healing work rather than band-aiding gunshot wounds. So spouse, here's what I want to encourage you to do. I'm not saying don't be hurt. I'm not saying don't even be angry at the injustice. What I am saying is try to bite against the older brother mentality and try not to embrace self-righteousness, but instead say, what is the grace that's been extended to me? Try to extend that to your spouse. Okay. How do I think Jesus does the whole anger and then lust? Well, what does he say in anger? He says, be reconciled with your brother. Why? Because it's so important for us to have healthy community in order to wrestle with this stuff. And anger has the ability to isolate you, which has the ability to continue on in these terrifying and difficult sins. So we need to lean into to our home groups. We need to lean into community. We need to lean. And here's the thing. I'm not, I'm not telling you you need to broadcast this stuff, all right? Like, I'm not telling you that on Facebook, you know, I have now you know, cut off my right hand, and here's how I'll do it. I would say that no wisdom there. Like, red lights. No. But you do need to find some people you trust, some people who love your soul, Spouse being one, hopefully you have some other people who care about you. They don't care about your position. They don't care about, they care about your marriage. Care about you. 
that you can share with that are going to be willing to come alongside and help you to fight, to wrestle, and to ultimately kill that which is trying to kill you. Okay. Now, apart from practicals, I want to say this. What is this text meant to do? Why would Jesus do this? Yes, of course, he's after the healing portion. But what is he really calling us to? He wants us all to leave out of here and say, we need Jesus. Not that Jesus is a great offer whenever we're really struggling. You ever heard that? Like Jesus is good for people who can't deal with the hardship of life. No, 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 friends. Jesus is necessary for everyone because we can't really know life apart from him. Period. There's none of us that should be confident enough to walk out of here and think, man, I am going to handle this on my own. And if we do, I tell you, friends, you walk in folly. We need Jesus. He's not merely a good idea or a helpful addition. He is a savior who helps the helpless, which is you and me. He's here this morning because he's promised his presence would be where two or three are gathered, and that's why gathering is so important. So that as we experience the presence of Christ this morning, whether it be as we take communion together or as we sing together, the hope is that we lean into the Savior because God is after something beautiful in you. Not merely that you would externally conform to him and avoid punishment. My God, he loves you more than that. And so I pray you feel that love this morning. And so my prayer all week has been, even though maybe we don't feel like it's a super chipper sermon, that it will be joyful sermon because there's hope here. And you need to know there is hope here for those who are struggling. Because guess what? Whether we're willing to admit it or not, that includes all of us. So if you'll stand to your feet, I'll pray for us. Father, I want to confess to you that um, we need and finding ourselves in a needy posture is not a bad place for us to be. There are many worse things that could happen, Lord, than for us to feel dependent. (laughs) And so I ask, Holy Spirit, would you help us by, in this moment of dependence, calling us to yourself? God, heal marriages, bring some restoration where maybe people didn't even know there was brokenness. I pray for transparency, vulnerability, honesty, where there can be. And Lord, I also pray for grace upon grace, because Jesus, that's who you are. Grace upon grace upon grace for the brother or the sister who feels condemnation, Would you remind them that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus? So let us be running to the ark together. Let us be running to the place where there's no condemnation, Jesus, at your side. And let us find joy and peace there. We love you, Lord. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.